This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Beauty of Horror, a podcast dedicated to exploring the unsettling beauty found within our favorite genre. Each episode, I will sit down with a different guest to discuss a horror film they find particularly beautiful and why. I'm your host, Chandler Bullock, and today's guest is an award-winning writer and director of feature indie films including The Last Ones, Borderland, and the upcoming The Empty Space. Beautiful welcomes to Andrew Hara. Hello, thank you. Thank you for having me on. I'm delighted to have you on. Thank you for uh, accommodating my time difference so that uh, you got up a little early for this. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. I think as a director, you always have to deal with a million different time differences. So it's it's no skin off my back. <laughs> well, happy to hear it. Happy to hear it. So, dear listeners, as you are used to at this point, before we begin our discussion, I would like to kick off each episode with a quote about beauty that relates to our topic. This can be from philosophy or from the filmmakers themselves, but let's just look at my track record and say it's probably going to be philosophy. So today's quote is, Beauty is involved with a wide range of targets, male as well as female, non-human as well as human, abstract as well as concrete. This is why Steiner, this is a theorist that they are talking about, is right to say it is an important task, quote unquote, for us to, quote, imagine beauty in a way that is consistent with empathy and equality. I will reveal who said this a little later and why I thought this fits in with our conversation today, at least parts of the conversation I was interested in. Uh, but first, Andrew, let's talk a little bit about you and your work and horror in general. So how did this all start for you? That's the question I tend to throw at everybody. Yeah, I think, well, I always enjoyed films and film and the idea of films. You know, we I got into them when I was real young and our my parents never really like sheltered us from any type of film. We were able to watch kind of anything. I think the only movie we weren't able to watch was like The Specialist with Sylvester Stallone because oh. it was like super R-rated. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but like we were growing up, we would watch like Terminator and Aliens and all these films. And so I think once I got into college and I kind of saw what my options were, I decided to take a shot at making films. And, uh, you know, being in a small, well, Paso's not that small, but it's smaller than like Austin and Texas and mm-hmm. it's farther away than everything. It seemed like a long shot, but I figured now's the time to, to take it for. And so just kind of started making these movies and going to film school and, and it, it went off from there. Oh, I love to hear it, uh, especially from somebody who's from a much smaller area than El Paso. Uh, yeah, from, uh, <laughs> from Columbus, Mississippi, a place that only Tennessee Williams fans have probably ever heard of since he wrote a few of his famous uh, uh, plays there. But uh I just love the idea that somebody's like, I don't really care where I'm from in comparison to where everybody else who started is from. You can start anywhere. So yeah, take that passion and enroll with it. Yeah. And I think like when you're in film score, just talking to film students, a lot of them will say, oh, well, here's how Steven Spielberg got into it. And they kind of try to copy that. Mm-hmm. But I think hearing all these ways of how, you know, even like the big ones, Spielberg and Lucas and everything, 
instead what I took was, oh, there's no clear path to making it. You just kind of go your own way and and kind of decide. And that's when I realized, okay, so there is a path. I just have to kind of forge it a little bit. Yeah, I've noticed that with my own endeavors as well, that of course, we're always going to get inspiration from certain people and, and take tiny things here and there. I mean, how else are you going to learn techniques unless you try to figure out almost like a science experiment, right? Like, how the hell did you do that? <laughs> but it doesn't mean you're going to create anything necessarily in the same way, because the thing that you should take from those auteurs and people that you love is, well, what do they do differently? Well, they forged their own path, didn't they? Right, right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Oh, excellent. So then you uh, have a film that is now in the festival circuit, The Empty Space. You want to talk a little bit about that and, and uh, what people can expect, if, or at least where they might be able to uh, witness this? Yeah. So when I was in film school, we made a feature film called The Last Ones. It's like a zombie film, and it's like a full-length uh, art house college film student pretentious film uh, for anyone <laughs> who wants to check it out. And so I, after we, after I graduated, I moved out to Los Angeles and like, you know, the idea was, Oh, I'll sell it. And then, um, and then we'll go from there. And, you know, it never, it never really sold. And so we, I was just in a Los Angeles and I started to experience really bad anxiety and really mm. bad kind of depression and stuff. And so Eventually, I left LA just because there was no real opportunities opening up besides just like staying in LA to be in LA, like by yeah. you know, yeah, like just yeah, I was just making money to stay there, and it, it I wasn't creating or anything. So I came back to El Paso, and this is when I kind of had this idea of like putting all of living with anxiety in a very realistic way into a sh- into a film, and I kind of didn't think about budget or anything. I um. And so I just started writing. And as I was writing, it kind of started to feel cathartic in a lot of ways. And so eventually it kind of turned into a horror film. Um, okay. Into a kind of cosmic horror film. Because I really wanted, it wasn't so much that I wanted to tell the most realistic uh, version of having anxiety and living with anxiety. I wanted to tell the most relatable one. Mm. And with a lot of times using the medium of film, it was easier to tell it through kind of metaphor than it was through like actually actually like just telling people I felt like it, it helped the metaphor helped because it gave you the feeling of anxiety as opposed to just kind of telling you what anxiety feels like right. and so that's how it kind of came about and in that time I was able to sell the last ones and we uh it took about 6 years to get the funds and in between we made Borderland for like I think it was like $5,000 over what? like six nights. Yeah. <laughs> and the whole point of it was I was I told myself, listen, I want to make a movie because it's been four or five years since I've made one or since I've really done anything with film. And I want to see if I still have it um, or if it's still worth fighting for. And so we made Borderland. And the idea was like, whatever it does is good enough, you know, and <laughs> it got into some festivals and it got sold too. And so... Now, they ended up being pretty successful, and so we were able to kind of get the funds for Empty Space, and we shot that over, I think it's been about a year and a half now, or maybe even two years, but we shot it and made it, and now it's finally in festivals. Coronavirus kind of slowed us down, Mm. but yeah, I think it's the most, it's the film I'm most proud of, because I kind of, with Borderland, it was more of a farce, like we just wanted like a kind of mid-half, a midnight grindhouse movie where right. i put everything i wanted into it 
And with the last ones, it was very much like this is what college kids make. And so <laughs> the empty space is very like it's close to the chest. It, it has something that I really wanted to say and get off. So um, so I'm proud of how it's doing so far. Oh, great. Yeah, I've, I've seen it popping up on a few lists as well. Is it uh, on any do you know if there are any festivals around that time that it would be, be vis- like available for people? No, not not yet. We uh, not yet. you'd be surprised at how close they tell you that it's going to be released. Okay, it, yeah, <laughs> they they tell you like, you know, the longest I've had is like a month. So oh, wow, okay, yeah, all they right. they don't give you any time at all. Um, but if if this is going to be out in July, I know that we won Best of the Fest at Sacramento Horror Film Festival, which is our first horror film festival, which was cool because it was like. That was one that I remember when I first, it used to be called, the festival website used to be called Without a Box, mm-hmm. and you just kind of look at the different festivals. And I remember seeing Sacramento and being like, that one looks cool, let me submit to that one, and I, <laughs> we never got in. So to finally not only get in, but to win the whole the whole thing was, yeah. was pretty amazing. And then we're, well, we were in the uh, Horror Hotel Film Festival, and mm-hmm. we won second place at that one, so... It's pretty good that every festival we've been in, we've won an award. And so, yeah, that's exciting. That's super Also, real, real fast as a note, uh, we are actually in it right now. We haven't, they haven't announced that we've won. So we're going to do that tomorrow. But if this is running in late July, it'll, I said it in past tense just for it to make more sense. <laughs> that's good. You, you think ahead better than I do. <laughs> and most of the time I'll, I'll look at these recordings back and go, I mean, it's probably a little later than that, but oh well. <laughs> right, right. Like, well, I should have said that in the past tense, but okay. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> uh, no, I'm really excited for you. It sounds like it's really taken off. In a see, the thing is, I, I I can feel for you there, having worked on different types of indie projects or like 48 hour pro- uh, film projects here and there, and it's just like I don't really care too much about the monetary development or something or the, or the how much money it's going to make me i mean it'd be nice but <laughs> you know it's not really the end goal so just to see things like some people might find awards pretty arbitrary but i find them a sign that somebody for some reason i, I mean they'd have to tell me tell you in person right right what that reason is but still there was a consistent consensus that this is the one we like the most in this category right which is great yeah and i think that's the most the thing that I've been most excited for about this film is that the reception we're getting back has been has been ecstatic in a way that I've never really felt before. Where at the Sacramento Horror Film Festival, they let you comment on the films and just looking at all the comments and those people really liking it. And then we won the award, which is even better. It's just kind of the same thing where I don't care so much about awards. It's more just the, the idea of what it represents that people like it enough to kind of to kind of report it with something is, is what's important to me. And so, yeah, it's, it's super cool to see people like reacting to it and telling me like we get, I got a message about someone who said they were suffering from their own anxiety and it helped them to kind of come up, come to terms with that fact. And it's like, yeah, that's literally the exact reason why we did it. So that's perfect, you know, and it's, it's interesting to see people react to it. Love it. I love hearing stories like that. I've been on both sides. You know, I love going to filmmakers and letting them know, how much their film meant to me if I, you know, muster up the courage to do so. Right. Uh, and if I've ever been a part of anything and somebody enjoyed it for whatever reason, at the very least that it just got their mind off of something killer. 
you've done a good job. At least that's how it feels to me. It's like, that's the goal just to make sure that you're, you understand life a bit better or that you've had a good day, you know? Right. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think, I think it's, it's interesting either way. And I, you know, that's, that's the best thing is hearing, hearing reactions to, I feel like a film isn't complete until you've shown it to an audience, mm-hmm. regardless of what that audience is, you know? Fair. Well, since we're talking about reactions to filmmakers' work, I think that's a great segue into getting into the meat and potatoes of today's discussion. So I approached you for this podcast, and you did your due diligence and took some time and really stewed in it. Like, what film did you want to bring in? And I have to say, you surprised me with your choice. So uh, for one, I think you're the first person to bring up a film to me uh, that wasn't of the last 20 years. So oh, right. that's a really cool <laughs> thing. And especially from the era that it came from as well, that like yeah. when I think of beauty and film, I'm like harder argument to make. So I love it. And it means it's a more personal argument. So I love it even more. Uh, what is the film that you chose? Yeah, I chose uh, Joel Schumacher's The Lost Boys, Lost which is, Boys. yeah, it's my favorite. Well, it's one of my favorite vampire films of all time. Right. There are a lot of really good ones, but I have to agree. Yeah. This is one of the apex, like, hey, what's a vampire in America? Hold on. I'll get The Lost Boys and show you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and I, well, and it, it's really between Lost Boys and Blade, but I feel like Blade, Blade okay. is more of an, Blade more of an action film. But yeah, I think, well, and. Originally, I wanted to, you know, I just kind of really thought about what what beauty and of horror meant, and it just so happened that I just was watching The Lost Boys, <laughs> and I said, "Oh, this works! This works for so because it was between like The Lost Boys, The Shining, and Alien." But I feel, mm-hmm. I felt like eventually someone will cover The Shining and Alien. I feel like The Lost Boys will get lost in the mix, and so <laughs> I wanted to add it to the to the lexicon of this of this podcast i love that you did it so early too you know like <laughs> we're really early in the first season and uh this is why i'm really excited i think you're, you're also the first you know, person that i've approached whose predominant work is filmmaking so you know oh, right. I, just about everybody i know has some sort of ties to filmmaking whether it's writing or something but that's like as well on top of other like myriads of film theory and other podcasting and all that kind of stuff. So film critic with a little bit of work, but I'm like, ah, a filmmaker. I cannot wait to see how different this is going to be. <laughs> and then you're like the lost boys. Like we have a good start. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so for anybody who has not seen the lost boys yet, which is surprisingly quite a few people still, I mean, now uh, it's as old as I am. So I understand right. if it's gone into a little bit of obscurity. Now uh, I have a very brief synopsis, which doesn't even cover the majority of the subplots of this film, but I wanted to get the major plot here. So just to entice people granted now, if based on the synopsis, you're like, that sounds really cool. Please go watch it before you listen to the rest of the podcast. Cause we're about to spoil everything. <laughs> so, um, but before we spoil things, here's a spoiler free synopsis. A recently divorced mother and her two teenage boys move in with her father in the small coastal town of Santa Carla, California, which is fictional by the way. Things look grim from the very moment they arrive. They're penniless, they don't know anyone, and they see signs claiming that Santa... I say, is it Santa Carla or Santa Clara? Santa Clara is how they pronounce it in the film. And I did it wrong. <laughs> I'm going to start over because I have it, I have it <laughs> okay. spelled twice differently as well. It was Clara, I think. 
A recently divorced mother and her two teenage boys move in with her father in the small coastal town of Santa Clara, California, which is fictional, by the way. Things look grim from the very moment they arrive. They're penniless, they don't know anyone, and they see signs claiming Santa Clara to be the murder capital of the world. The trio try to adjust to their new lives in the town, but the eldest son, Michael, makes the worst blood-sucking sorts of friends imaginable. Meanwhile, little brother Sam is confronted by a pair of strange brothers who work at the local comic book store. They keep pushing horror comic books about vampires his way, calling them a survival guide. Things escalate as Michael begins to change. Sam reaches out to the brothers from the comic shop to help his brother and and to join them in taking down the group of ghouls most likely to blame for Santa Clara's gruesome reputation. So, vampires abound in this wonderful film. And, uh, yeah. What struck your fancy to bring this one up, if you can succinctly put it some way. We'll unpack it a little bit more as we go, of course. Yeah, I think that it was not just the fact that I really like the way this film looks. I think it's Joel Schumacher's most interesting film, especially considering like it's kind of like what he wanted to do with Batman Forever, but he's doing it authentically in this with mm-hmm. the neon and the different colors. But it's also that the th- it's thematically it fits the beauty of horror because it's kind of i mean that's what david played by kither sutherland that's what he's offering you know like it even says on the poster stay young forever and there's this idea <laughs> of of uh, of youth equaling beauty and you know that to me it was like okay so it works both ways and that they're kind of trying to do this they're tr- they're selling you this beauty that you can keep forever and i think both in theme and in look it's you find out that it's artificial, you know, between the neon lights, which aren't real to <laughs> the fact that to be, to be, a, to be young forever, you have to feast on people every once in a while. It's uh it's all, it's all kind of an illusion. Even the, even the granddad's hobby of taxidermy kind of becomes kind of ties into the, to the idea of they're, they're creating these, these artificial, artificial beauties that don't really exist and they they kind of want you to sell you on them and you know depending and that's kind of the main thrux of the film whether david will fall for the trap or not this is exactly what i thought you were going for when i was watching it again today because i was <laughs> looking at it as like yeah most people have chosen films based on the aesthetic qualities that the films possess not to say this is not a good looking movie it's great looking but it does have a very mainstream 80s look very typical of its time right it's not like we're looking at somebody who has done like a slow burn painting of a film to really like (laughs) overwhelm the senses it's just got some cool shots in it because schumacher does his way around a camera um but it's more that it's about standards of beauty and about uh what sort of lies and by lies i mean like not lying down but like untruths lie within these narratives of beauty within vampire stories. So I'm happy that we were right. on the same wavelength on that one. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, at first I was a little like, okay, hmm, where do I go? And I love it though. It's a nice challenge. That's also where my quote comes from as well. Uh, so uh, let's see. The person who said that was Patrick Colm Hogan, who's a professor at the University of Connecticut, who works on aesthetics. Most specifically, he works with emotion and narrative. So he likes to look at uh, the intersections between literary studies and other uh, cognitive sciences. 
And that whole article that he was writing on was just more or less yet another version of an academic who is saying to other academics, your arguments against us studying beauty purely don't hold because your arguments are political and political problems need a political focus. And just because we have politics within beauty doesn't mean that the beauty is the problem. It's it's social problem and it's a reactionary yeah. issue that we have. So that's what he's getting at in that point. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it is. And I think that's this, that quote works real well with this film. Cause like I said, it, it's, a, it's drawing from everything from the characters. I mean, even when Schumacher makes them into vampires, he never, he doesn't hide, like he gives them more fertile brows and mm-hmm. he kind of changes their eye contact, but they still very much look like the characters that they, that they are. I mean, like the actors. And so I think it was very intentional that he picked, you know, it has Alex Winter and Keith Sutherland as the as the villains. They're all like yeah. really attractive hunks, if you. And so he he never loses that aesthetic, and it's like okay, I think I think Schumacher, who's he he's giving you kind of like he's presenting to you this idea of what his his form of beauty is, especially at the time in the eighties, and he's kind of. Mm-hmm warping it in a way to to make it kind of demonic i also noticed that he did that with santa carla itself because he makes this weird kind of hellish version of like beverly hills and Mm -hmm. and uh, san francisco but then he's like turned them into 80s style new york basically with all of the, the the gang members are outside but there's also a little bit of like the south in there too you have like people yeah. and their their wife beaters just sitting on their old beat up trucks staring at you, uh, but they're all beautiful model esque people doing all yeah. this shit. <laughs> so, yeah, and I think even like that first scene where Jason's on the going on the boardwalk is uh, kind of reflects that. Like every single person on on the boardwalk is super attractive, even mm-hmm. to the infamous sax player who's super oh, buff. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And I think like looking at it through because there is this kind of forever beauty, uh, you know, trope with all with most vampire movies or vampire stories, especially with Dracula. But they kind of especially as we've gone on, they've kind of moved away from that. And I love that Schumacher kind of leans into it a lot more than other other filmmakers or other mm-hmm. or other storytellers. I'd say especially at the time, you know, it's a very common practice in the 80s to get very beautiful model-esque actors in your film. So that's a pretty typical casting process. But the the sheer scope of his cast in this film, down to the extras, is just such a consistent look of beauty standards in America at the time. And as you pointed out, yes, it's a common trope in vampire storytelling. But if you were to take Dracula, for instance... There's also love tends to come into play. Usually it's obsession mm-hmm. and love and hunger tend to be focused right. on a lot. And this movie doesn't care about any of those things. Like when they feed, they're just kind of fucking around, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and I was going to type and this, you know, this was just kind of thinking about vampire movies in general. But one of the other interesting things about this movie is that they kind of break away from more traditional stories. Like there's never that scene where... um there's 
This is one of the only vampire movies where I've seen a lot of emphasis on consent as far as mm-hmm. turning you into a vampire. Like they they have David. They I mean they're tricking him into drinking the blood and stuff. Mm-hmm. But they ask him if he can drink if he wants to drink the blood, and they kind of peer pressure him into it. But they never force him to do it, or they don't mm-hmm. force him to kill anyone. Uh, of course, Max with the rules of you have to be invited to come in is it a huge reference and so i think that kind of plays into when they are vampires and they are going to suck your blood they they just eat you they don't they don't uh they're like they're murders and they're consenting turning you into a vampire are very separate for this group and i think that that's an interesting take and i don't even know if it was intentional but watching it again and really like looking at it through the beauty of horror lens Mm -hmm. kind of showed me these things that i didn't think about it in the like 20 years I've been watching this film. <laughs> That's the point of the podcast is to reevaluate <laughs> the films that we love and see if we can find even more about it that we love. Uh, I'm right there with you. I actually hadn't thought about it in terms of consent, but now that you mention it, uh, it's spot on. Yeah. My, my partner had also mentioned how she was pretty tickled by like, isn't it kind of funny how they just show up and they're like, Hey Michael, you want to, you want to hang out with us? Hey Michael, you, <laughs> yeah. you want to have some food with us? Hey, Michael, you want to drink this blood? <laughs> right. And he's right. just going along with them as well. I do think there may be some sort of vampiric glamour on him at certain moments because they do yeah. kind of mess around with the food and make him believe it's uh, right, maggots right. and stuff. But overall, it was quite interesting how it starts with this machismo challenge of catch me if you can. And right. then it just turns into I loved the line how uh, David just says straight up to him. How far are you willing to go with this, Michael? Yeah. It's probably the most yeah. sexual line in the film, actually. Right. <laughs> and there is a weird chemistry between Michael and uh, and David. Keith mm-hmm. Sutherland is David, right? Yeah, Keith Sutherland is David. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, they're like they, especially when they talk, I feel like there's more emphasis on their relationship than even Star and Michael. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I don't 100% know why but i do like their their kind of back and forth and the way that um that david's kind of luring michael as opposed to like forcing him again Mm -hmm. and and i really like the way that keith sutherland plays this role oh he's so good in this role like yeah he's so dastardly evil (laughs) yeah but in a very suave kind of way <laughs> yeah yeah and he's having so much fun mm-hmm. as david that it's kind of like okay i understand why david was able to convince like six or seven kids to join him yeah <laughs> he's so good at like kind of convincing you like oh this is cool stuff like i'm having fun with this yeah right hey let's go dive off of this giant bridge <laughs> and float underneath it <laughs> yeah, yeah i also just loved how David seems to indulge in everything, even to the moment that he right. dies. He kind of smirks a little bit right before he, yeah. he just leans <laughs> over and dies. I mean, probably just thinking, oh, Max is going to just mess you boys up. But uh, he also has the most gentle death, too. Like he has a pure soul leave his body. There's no explosions. <laughs> yeah. It's very weird with David. David. Yeah. And they even like they make it they make it a point for Max to kind of show him turn back into like the beautiful boy that he was. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think that that's, that's another interesting thing is the way David dies. Cause he, I mean, he is the worst one out of all of them. <laughs> and yet they kind of give him this, uh, I mean, yeah, they give him like a, like 
not a redemption, but they do give him like, oh, he was just a boy kind of kind of last look at him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's where the title of the film, of course, would come from as well. If uh, if you know your literature listeners uh, or, you know, your Disney movies, then you would know the Lost Boys being a reference to Peter Pan. And therefore, uh, Santa Carla is going to be a very weird (laughs) version of Neverland. (laughs) Uh, But the Lost Boys are just a group of boys that were orphans that, you know, basically, if you're an orphan boy, Peter Pan would answer your wishes and take you off to Neverland where you could live free as a a child with his basically you're, you're a child pirate. And in this case, you're teenage vamps who get to look awesome (laughs) with clothes from clearly not America, but that's cool. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Their outfit choices. I like that. They're so uniform. I think it's like when you're immortal that way, you just go, well, I'll dress any way I want to. I don't care if I look like a freak. I will eat them later. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're kind of cavalier attitude to everything. I remember one of the scenes that always sticks out is at the very beginning. Um, they're walking through the boardwalk and someone, or and I think it's Alex Winter looks at, looks at the worker and he says, oh, you're the only reason I come in here. And it's kind of like the first time you see it, it looks like, oh, they're just teens. But as the movie goes on, you're like, oh, these kids, like they'll say everything because they don't care. Yeah. Because they're they're they live forever. They don't they have no recollection of of pain or like disappointment almost. Mm-hmm. I'm very curious. Now I have not seen the sequels, so they may address this in the sequels for the film. But I'm very curious what would happen in terms of beauty if you have a hungry vampire, because as you already pointed out, that seems to be the main focus here: is that you feed to stay young more than right. just to stay alive. Because they don't ever seem to be ravenous at any point in the film. They do it for fun because they have so many people to choose from. And it's such a violent right. city that, like, who's going to miss you? Um, yeah. Yeah, I'm very curious what it would be like in this world if you were to have a vampire just get drained for whatever reason. Yeah. Or even, like, because I know Star and um and the little boy, they they haven't drank any blood yet. And so they... They get all the the positives of being a vampire, but they don't have any of the negatives. Like they don't have the bloodlust yet. But I would wonder how long that lasts. Because for David, he, he uh, or for Michael, he's immediately like starving for blood. Yeah, he like wants to eat everything. And I feel like Star doesn't have that same problem. And it, I mean, Star just seems more strong willed than David. But yes, I feel like uh, I I would like to see them explore a little bit. Of uh, of what would happen? Like, how long does she have? Yeah, before it just overtakes her, you know. That's what makes this movie still very much one of those '80s effects types of films, where it's more about how terrifying the vampires are than just about anything else in the film. Whereas, it's a a more modern filmmaker. Granted, they'd probably have the hubris to make it two and a half hours long, but <laughs> right. uh, they would still probably explore just in one scene what that is like at least try to kind of as you were saying with your film with the empty space you know try to find some sort of allegorical sequence to convey the feeling that a vampire is going through maybe through like a nightmare sequence or something like that right right yeah and i kind of like that you see a lot of the vampire sequences through the eyes of his brother Mm -hmm. because you kind of get like 
you know, Michael, once he once he kind of turns, it's more disbelief and he doesn't really uh, react in a way that like, I mean, he's kind of taking it with him, but he's more scared where his brother Sam is just like freaking out every single chance. <laughs> yes. Every new development, he freaks out a little bit more. And so you kind of get both ends of the of the scale of how people would react to the vampires. It's so true to Sam's character as well. I mean, he's bitching <laughs> yeah. and moaning from the very moment they get there because he just wants to live back home, you know? Right. Uh, they right. were from Phoenix, right? Yeah. 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 Which is always funny to me because I'm like, why would you want to go back to Phoenix? It <laughs> doesn't sound good at all. <laughs> Well, I mean, compared to where they were, I guess just about everywhere was at least felt a little safer, you know? Um, that is true. But that's because he's just a kid who didn't like change, basically. Uh, he's yeah, yeah. We don't have MTV, nothing. We don't have a TV at all. Nothing's the same. <laughs> so I can imagine that when there's a freaking vampire in your house, it's just like, this is too much change. I can't deal with this anymore. And he just right, freaks right. <laughs> to our <laughs> entertainment. <laughs> Yeah, he he gets all the entertainment he needs. Yeah. <laughs> and on that beauty uh, comment about the beautiful cast, too, I mean, we would be remiss to not mention the fact that they did cast the Corys for this film. Right, you know, right, yeah. Biggest heartthrobs for, like, your preteen demographic at the <laughs> yeah. time. And they sell it so well. I mean, Sam's whole wardrobe is just immaculate costuming. Yeah. And his hair's yeah. perfect. And he's, like, the most wholesome kid which makes him yeah. so beautiful in so many different ways. I just, I can't get over how much Sam is like one of those like goalposts of, Oh, I wish I could have been that cool <laughs> as a kid and that wholesome. <laughs> yeah. I think that played into a lot of when we were watching it as, or when I was watching it as a kid, it's like, you kind of wanted to be every character in mm-hmm. the movie because they all seem so cool in their own specific way. But Sam, I feel was the most that like you could have been, I yeah. could be Sam as long as I just get like a weird tie and a blazer for the summer in California to wear. That's it. You know, if you were willing <laughs> yeah. to go into the thrift shop and get over, you know, needing to go to JCPenney or something, <laughs> then you'd be able to have that kind of cool thing that Sam had. But obviously, most kids don't have that kind of adult fashion sense. That's that's definitely a, just a really good costume designer who thought up this is how Sam's going to be. It says so yeah. much about his yeah. character. <laughs> Yeah, Sam is Sam is perfect, and I mean all of the costuming is is done really well. From the Frog Brothers to the to the gang, they just kind of they all you all kind of immediately get what their their look is. I mean, what their personality is going to be based off of their look. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even down to uh, Marco, who's uh, Alex Winter's character, how he is just so clear, like. Oh, you're the one who probably causes everybody the most problems, don't you? <laughs> right. You're the unhinged but kind of frat boyish one of the group. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so one reading I had from the film now, I'm sure this is just from my own personal experiences, but, and knowing a little bit about Schumacher's, uh, you know, sexuality and stuff, I got a very queer reading from the film, not just because of David and Michael having such a great chemistry together. I did feel like, wow, yeah. this is such a wonderfully bisexual movie. Uh, there's also the fact that, the process that Michael goes through for me, that change that he's undergoing, I could see a little bit of, of maybe puberty in there. But for me, it felt more like when you're a bit older and you have a different vocabulary for the world and you start to think right. about identity or 
even if it's not, let's say if you can't relate uh, from anybody who's like, well, I can't really relate to that because maybe you're not queer. You don't know anybody who's queer, but it still felt very relatable in that struggle that we all have to communicate ourselves to the outside world. And when you have the outside world who just doesn't understand, because you have this wonderful scene with him and his mom. So it's the night after the whole maggots and the rice and all that. And right. it might've even been the night after they all decide to feed. And Michael just watches them feed on everybody when they're playing Aerosmith, which oh, yeah, I keep yeah. forgetting they have Aerosmith in this movie. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he comes home with the sunglasses and they have that very classic mom kid kind of like, okay, you're hanging out with the wrong crowd kind of thing. Oh, you don't want to talk about it. Oh, everything in my right. life is more important than homework and, and social <laughs> life, mom. She's like, okay, and I wouldn't understand, right? Which, of course, right. she wouldn't because it's vampirism that he's talking about. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I did think that it was a very strong metaphor for deeper feelings that we've all harbored that we can't really communicate with people. So... Granted, from my perspective, I get it from a more queer side because that's the part of me that's been harder to express than anything else in my life. Right. But I would still say that everybody has at least some personal part of themselves that will bug you and you have no idea how to address this to other people and probably don't really feel the right. need to. Yeah, and I definitely see that. And I see that there's like, especially with Michael, there's this like time, whether it's, you know, coming to terms with your even like sexuality, you know, heritage, whatever, it's mm -hmm. coming to terms with this thing that only you can come to terms with, you know, yeah. like he's the only one who has to face the vampirism in the family. So even though he can get help from Sam or from his mom, they don't really know what it's like, especially like there's a scene at the end that's kind of, it's, it's not brushed over, but it's fast where he's protecting star and like no one else in the house wants to protect star mm -hmm. the kid yeah. because they're both vampires. And so, um, yeah, it's kind of, there's a lot of Michael having to kind of figure things out for himself and decide what he wants to be on his own. And I think like, that's kind of an interesting, cause you have on one side, you have David and his proposition and the other side, you have his family and star and, and all of them. And like the whole crux of it is him deciding on his own, which one he wants to be a part of. And I mm. think, yeah, I think that's a huge, a huge theme of the film and whether, you know, whatever it is that you come to terms with, I think there's definitely like a relation to that. And I think all of us in one way or another come to terms with, with, with something like that, you know, mm -hmm. whether it's, yeah, your sexuality or, or uh, even your job, just like kind of becoming who you really are as opposed to who other people want you to be. Yes. Yes, uh, for sure. And I think that the really interesting push-pull dynamic for this one is normally you would see in, say, like a straight, I mean, straight isn't just like straight up drama, you know, <laughs> right. a grounded drama, that's a better word, that it would be more that somebody is trying to express themselves and, Hey, I want to do this job or I have this, this dream, this goal, or I feel this way as a person. And then the, maybe their family are telling them like, you need to like stop all that and just make sure that you have a pension at the end of the day and, right, right, and, and, right. and a nuclear family to take care of and all these different ideals that are being thrust upon them. But Michael has it the other way around here, which I found very interesting is that he's pretty comfortable with his family. He loves his family. He loves his way of life. He thought he knew who he was. <laughs> and it's not until David starts to make him question 
You know? Yeah, yeah, of course. And then you get that dilemma. Maybe that's for me also where the, I guess the, the more queer perspective comes in is just knowing that I felt that way until I did meet somebody who was bisexual, who was also mm-hmm. the same gender as myself. So then right. the kind of crisis that you get of I hadn't like I knew that people could feel that way, but I never knew that that was more than a concept. It's kind of right. Funny. Right. So the moment you yeah. start to put yourself into other people's worlds you start to also kind of wonder, what is my world? And sometimes that just creates this vacuum that you don't really know what to do with anymore. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And I think as, you know, maybe as a read for bisexuality, I think it Mm -hmm. works even better because like you said, Michael is not running away from his family. Like, yeah, he kind of gets in arguments with his mom, but they're very mother-son in a good family arguments where it's more about like, get out of my room, mom, as opposed to like any (laughs) actual strife. And so David coming in and kind of breaking that up and making Michael question what he wants and not letting him be complacent, even though he ends up choosing what he wanted, it's because he chose as opposed to, this is just already the status quo Mm -hmm. and it's easy to fall back into it. So I think, yeah, you know, with bisexuality, especially with people who are in long-term, you know, different gendered relationships, Mm -hmm. there's that like bisexuality erasure. And so it kind of like, yeah, if you're bisexual and you're in a quote unquote straight relationship, it doesn't make you not bisexual anymore. Yeah, (laughs) You're still bisexual. Mm -hmm. And it's like, why, and I know that there's been that argument of like, well, why do you have to say it? And it's like, because you are being true to yourself as opposed yep. to just keeping it shut. And I think that's what Michael ends up doing is even though he ends up with his family, it's because of a choice he made and now he knows what to do with it. And so, yeah, I, I think that reading works really well into the themes of hmm. the film. I also think that it's just a very unique take on it considering – his resistance to the other side uh, with the vampires, because the only people that really give him that dogmatic, this is the way it is attitude were the people who changed his worldview to begin with. So he gets in with a crowd that could have offered something that you could spin quite positively. Actually, Uh, they don't show vampirism as any sort of suffering in this film. You're just living your best life. You just happen to happen. You know, you have to have no moral code for it to work right, basically right. and they try to break that part of him down but that's who he is he's just this moral dude who's like i live i just leave people alone and take care of my mom and my kid brother you know that that's right right that's my role because i want to do it my mom doesn't have a, a husband anymore who's going to take care of her right now she's a, she's a mess emotionally somebody's got to be there and as you pointed out you know in that conversation they were having he was just yeah. he was grumpy because he hadn't slept all day basically right and he's hungry right. but with david it's really clearly him saying, you're telling me what it means to be a vampire mm-hmm. because you are one. When right. I feel a completely different set of emotions than what you say I should feel. Yeah. 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 And I think like Star is kind of the the in-between mm-hmm. between David and and Michael. And where she's like, yeah, you don't have to follow. Like you can still be you know, vampire, but you can be like us. She even tells them at one point, you can be like me and uh, and the little kid because we don't act like them. We don't like randomly kill bikers on the on the on the beach, you know. And so they are like, yeah, they're presenting Michael with a bunch of different perspectives to kind of get him. And yeah, I think it's interesting that David's the one who's really, really like, no, you're with us or you're against us, you know. Yes, 
it brings up a lot of questions about family as well. Um, so previously I had an episode with Ren Crane where we spoke about the film Braid. And most of our discussion had to do with the concept of the chosen family because the characters in that right. film seem to have created a family dynamic outside of any biological connection with each other. Uh, and it's a very twisted family dynamic in that film. And the, I think the same would go here. I mean, the vampires themselves are a chosen family. Max has pieced right. together the family that he would like to have. You know, he calls them his boys. So he's very proud. Right, right. Oh, and I mean, we can get on that next if you want. You know, the whole boys will be boys kind of attitude that <laughs> Max has. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but you have Michael who takes the concept even further and just chooses his biological family. That's his choice. And yeah, I found that very interesting. Well, and you know, speaking of it, it's also interesting that there Max's wants the traditional, like he's made it, but he still wants like the whole reason that they've picked Michael and that they've picked that David is so persistent is because Max wants Michael to join so they can get Mm -hmm. Sam so that they can then get the mom. And so they can make a traditional like husband, wife kind of family. Mm -hmm. And there is that, very clear rejection of that with a huge wooden pole. Um, <laughs> and I, I, I think that's interesting that they're like, no, we're good. Like it doesn't have to be like, I can stay divorced and, you know, live with the grandpa. Yeah. And we don't have to like, we like the family is whatever we want it to be, even if it's biological. And I think that's an interesting, an interesting take on the whole idea of like, Oh, it has to be a wife and a, and a husband. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm Max. I'm the, I'm the head of the household. And, even the mom was never really into that idea as much as Max wanted her to be. Yeah, it's funny. He never showed his cards to her at all. So she probably thought he was a pretty progressive guy. <laughs> yeah. And then, oh, like if that's not a warning story for how, you know, late life uh, relationships can run, you have to be very careful right. with who you're dating. And really, yeah. you know, before you make any commitment with anybody, you really feel that out. Take your time because people will... <laughs> show you that maybe they had some you know different motives in mind or not and you're lucky and it's good right yeah (laughs) yeah yeah it's definitely a the mom has the worst because she goes from like hey max is great until oh no never mind it's literally like a second turn for her yeah at least david at least michael gets like a few days to process his his turn Mm mm-hmm yeah, she gets a few seconds, and then he's like, "Take yeah, my hand. Exactly. You're the one who has to make the decision." And it's like, "Well, right. pressure her much. Uh, <laughs> this is going to be a great family. Let's just uh, right." <laughs> um, it's interesting you point out though how it's Max who's looking for that that nuclear family dynamic. I love that one of the Frog Brothers points it out. It's like, "Oh yes, it's a it's like a blood sucking Brady bunch. That's great." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And it's true. It really is. You divorcee, I divorcee, we bring in our kids. Yeah. And we'll see where we go from here. But it, the Brady Bunch didn't have half of the kids being the local, <laughs> you know, gang members who were breaking property and killing right. people for right. fun. So that's one of the things I like about this movie, even with starts, like so much of this movie is like, there's so many themes are like things that are hinted at, like Max's real motivations. It's he tells you what it is, but why did Max come to this decision that he needed a wife, yeah. you know? And you kind of see a lot of things that are like, just kind of like, we just touched the surface. And I feel like that kind of adds a little bit of realism to it. Cause sometimes you, you might understand what people's motivations are, but you don't understand why they're under, they're saying this. And I, I feel like, yeah, like you were saying, like 
if this movie was made today, there would be that want to make it two and a half hours mm-hmm. and to kind of explain everything. And I like that things are just kind of on like some stuff that would be on the surface stays on the surface. Yeah. And I think that again, ties into the the quote that I gave. So the, the whole article, he unpacks a little bit better in terms of how beauty is perceived and the political problems that we have, you know, one argument against beauty in academia is that if you get caught up in how beautiful something is, you're not really focused on the sociopolitical problems that are around it. If you were to look at, well, look at Nazi imagery, for instance, if you get caught up in how just gorgeous some of the suits are and the hats and, right. and how well made the flags are and things like this, like, well, that was the whole point. That was yeah, what they right. did. They, they blinded you with glamor basically and said, yeah. this is the world. If you accept our ideology, you get more of this. And people went, I don't see a problem in that. That's fine. Whereas quietly they were doing things that they were never going to stop. <laughs> you know, you were never right, going to right. ever stop them from it. <laughs> but his argument is like, well, no, because the fact that Nazi imagery is beautiful and was used as a political tool has very little to do with how we can analyze the how of the manipulation though there's still a a different like sociological aspect to that there's still different political aspects to that that's a response theory that you have to look at there same goes for beauty standards in modeling and film uh the patriarchal system around beauty as well how beauty is a woman things like that and i found it really interesting in this film because you do have all these tiny pockets of political problems that pop up if you really like unpack it really well but it doesn't right they're not affected at all by the fact that these are beautiful characters with a beautiful skyline and wonderful ocean scenes and all this i mean even like you said the the saxophone guy is very famous not just because he's like ripped and beautiful but like the way the light sheens off of him and the fire and the cinematography there (laughs) it's all like a perfect package of you want to be at that party basically right right but is that scene bad because it's in the service of vampires hunting or is it just vampires hunting is bad and beauty happens to be a great tactic to do bad things right and i well and i think that there is the whole movie is presented as you know a lot of times it's presented as this um this illusion of beauty Mm -hmm. you know like even like i said even the taxidermy he's taking these dead animals and he's trying to pretend they're alive right and it's it's the same thing. It's trying to give you the illusion of something, like the illusion of this big, beautiful bird, <laughs> when it's actually just a corpse, you know? Yeah. And it's the same. I mean, that's pretty much David's character. He's a big, beautiful bird who's just a corpse. <laughs> and so I think, like, yeah, I think everything kind of plays into it in a way that's not on the surface. Like, you really have to look at it through that lens. And mm-hmm. I think especially, like, I'm a big proponent of, if I made the Lost Boys, it would not be this film. And I think mm. what really shines is that the fact that Joel Schumacher is, you know, he's a he's a gay or he was a gay man. And I think mm-hmm. that his looking at it through his lens is why the film is as effective as it is. Because yeah. there's there's like that. I mean, in the you know, with super bad and some of these like best friend movies, <laughs> you always have there is that kind of like, oh, they people think they're in love and they always have to make a joke like no, 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 we're actually straight. Yeah. And Joel Schumacher does not give a shit if you think no. that these guys are straight or, or not because he doesn't, you know, he just doesn't care. And so he's able to read the friendship between David and Michael and give it a more 
realistic, like, this is how male friends are, regardless of their sexuality. Like, they can get very close. Mm -hmm. And the fact that Joel Schumacher doesn't have to, like, remind you that these guys are straight or gay helps to build the gap or helps to, like, close the gap between the two and really, like, get you to see why David is so appealing to Michael, you know? Yeah. If really... He does a great job of analyzing uh, attraction in general and allows for a very open interpretation of whether it's a, you know, more heterosexual perspective or gay perspective or whatever perspective, because attraction is a factor here, but it doesn't really change. Like if you were to have the love scene that they have between Michael and star, yeah, replace star with David. And you do get a different dynamic because of the push pull dynamic that the two characters have throughout the film, but it doesn't really change the fact of the matter that Max was trying to make a vampire family and that all of the murders have been them and that they're all evil husks of human beings. And it doesn't change any of that. It just changes one slight dramatic narrative turn, which is a sub plot. So, Right. right, right. But yeah, yeah, I think it's interesting. I think uh, Joel Schumacher, he doesn't get as much credit as he deserves. And I think this movie kind of shows how much, like how being able to look, like, again, it's it's about the diversity of like being able to look through it through Joel Schumacher's eyes mm-hmm. is is what makes the movie so interesting. Absolutely. It was amazing to me already when I went to sit down to watch it again. I saw his name. I was like, wait, that's the same guy who did Batman and Robin, right? <laughs> yeah. No. And I looked like, how? <laughs> but yeah, you know, different days and different attitudes, you know, Jill Schumacher is <laughs> like, I have range. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. I think all, like everyone who was my age knew who Joel Schumacher was because of Batman and Robin Batman forever. Mm-hmm. But we had grown up watching Joel Schumacher's films. We just didn't know exactly. who we were who we were watching, like Falling Down, Lost Boys. And there I think for a lot of us there was that realization, like, oh my God, this is also Joel Schumacher. Mm-hmm. He did this too. I think that's a, that's an interesting aspect to how diverse he was, where it's like, oh yeah, you can kind of see hints in his other films of Batman and Robin, but not as much as you'd think. Like you'd think, you know, like if you see M like Chamalan, you see a lot of his same things, but Joel Schumacher was able to kind of weave through all these genres and kind of make his style kind of chameleon. Yeah. He was anything but one note, even with the two Batman movies that he did, they both heavily rely on camp, but they both rely on different types and usages of camp. You know, Batman forever seemed like a very logical kid friendly, uh, (laughs) you know, it, it it was a great extension from what came before. It's like, it had the Tim Burton, kind of broodiness with Val Kilmer in there, but it was a bit of a, it was kind of like the scream of Batman movies. It looked back on what Burton was doing and it's kind of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We know it now though. Right. So (laughs) gave you Batman forever. Let's get two face in here and whack a doodle fun. And then he decided now, can I make my Batman movie? And he made Batman and Robin and he decided to (laughs) homage the 1960s. And I love that those two movies are clearly by the same director yet have different kind of auras to them. And then if you take the lost boys, knowing that it's Joel Schumacher, I totally see it. The grandpa for me is one of the most Schumacher characters (laughs) (laughs) ever. Uh, (laughs) 
Uh, and I love that he gets the final say in the film as well. Yeah. He gets all the best lines <laughs> in this film. He really does. And I love a film that isn't afraid to pump in a lot of humor into it too. Cause right. this is a bit of a melodrama. If you look at the vampire side of it and it's a comedy, if you look at the frog brother side of it, and right, then right. if you look at it from Michael's side of things, or just even Sam's side of things, it's a straight up horror movie. It's got that right kind of, you know, interestingly, you pointed out how with, with the makeup, how they don't do much to change the features of the actors that are playing the vampires, which is really cool when you think about Fright Night, which came out just a few years before that. And yeah. they do go out of their way. So right. like, no, these are scary vampires. We've done the romance of the humans. Now we're scaring the hell yeah. out of you. And I love that the Lost Boys <laughs> decided to kind of weave that through the film that right. you're intimidated, but you're like, oh, but it's, oh, but you're still Kiefer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that's one of my favorite things about the film is how they don't ever lose that kind of boyish charm. Mm-hmm. They just kind of like pump up their, like they give their vampirism a little bit more then they take it back when they don't need it. And I think that's, that's interesting. That's, that's like a cool way to look And it. Kind of like, I feel like it's secular where you, every once in a while you get the pretty vampires mm-hmm. and then it goes back to the ugly one and it goes back around, you know, and it, this one was kind of bringing it in the middle of, of how the vampires looked. It does. It is interesting how it very casually or no, very comfortably stays within that middle ground between the beautiful vampire and the monstrous vampire. And I think it explores both sides pretty well as well, because you have the different characters that it can explore those aspects with Michael being the monster in the things he has to cope with at the very least, right? you know, the changes that are going through that he's going through at least. Yeah. And I think it's interesting that Michael's transformation, even when he's full vampire, it's the least amount of makeup. Like mm-hmm. you can very much tell it's Michael. And I think that's perfect for his character where he's still in between. So they kind of have him the least amount of, 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 of vampire. Mm-hmm. And I think like, yeah, like again, like how everything works from the cinematography to the makeup, to the clothes, the fact that it all plays back into that theme of, you know, of questioning beauty and stuff. It, it works really well in a way that I, again, like I didn't really think of it in that way until you asked me to kind of look at these films this way. <laughs> I'm really happy that you took the challenge as seriously as you have and, and really tried to tackle this from not only your own perspective, but just from a kind of sparked perspective, you know, spur of the moment, what inspires you? Because I feel that that's the best way to look at a conversation like this, especially if you don't have the same background that somebody who's used to talking about it infinitely uh, does. Uh, it, it keeps things fresh for me, but it also, uh, <laughs> it's for me, the beauty of discussing these things is to see somebody's just emotive response like this. This is what I'm thinking of. Right. I'm like, good. Cause now we can look at movies a little differently. And I'm, do, I do hope that there are other movies since that you've also already kind of started to look at like, well, well, maybe maybe there's something here with this movie too. You know, I don't know. Like, yeah, but especially a movie like The Lost Boys, because it doesn't have the same just out there cinematography and visual right. stance. You know, there is no. You're not going to turn it on and look at a still and be like, "Is this a Schumacher film?" 
(laughs) There's no major visual stamp like that. It's not the same as Argento. It's not the same as Kubrick, you know, something like that. And so because Schumacher was far more invested in storytelling and camp and other other forms of aesthetics, honestly, I think he was actually more of an audio sort of aesthetician because the music in this film is like seamless. The, the different types yeah. of music that he's put together here. Um, every needle drop works and they work <laughs> pretty much the same way. You're not going to get blindsided by the aesthetics. The, the beauty is going to lie somewhere right. else. And I'm really happy where you found it. Cause it's quite a unique one for the conversations I've been having. Yeah. And I think, cause there's, you know, like crimson peak or like midsummer, mm-hmm. There's those films that look like you don't you can look at any still of Crimson Peak and be like, oh yeah, this is great. <laughs> you know? But I think with like a movie like this where Schumacher is his cinematography, even when he's looking for like really beautiful like the shot of them all over the hanging from the from the train station, oh. you see like the fog behind that's a beautiful shot, yeah. but he doesn't ever linger on it. It's like everything is in service of the story to a way where he's not he's not so focused on how pretty it looks, even if he has a pretty shot. It's more like, okay, you got it. Let's go. Like, let's jump back into <laughs> what you need to know, you know? And I think, like, even though, like, Midsummer is always going to be the one that people will, like, want to go to because of how pretty it looks. Mm-hmm. I think movies like this also, when they do real good, like, maintenance cinematography, <laughs> it still works really well. And sometimes it works... Um, as good as like those kind of other movies where they're definitely going for more visual style. Yes. And, you know, when we're talking about the story as well, I think that that is more him kind of servicing that experiential part of it. You know, he's really wanting you to feel the disorientation that Michael's going through and the blindsidedness that Sam's going through with everything. Imagine if you were a kid who goes to a new town, you're annoyed with everything. You go to this comic shop and they just start sizing you up while you're in there, but they're like two years older than you. So you're like, what? (laughs) And I love how they play those scenes out. Like, like I love that those kids at the frog brothers play themselves as if they're like 30 or something. Right. They're probably like 18. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The Frog Brothers are so funny and like how tough they act and then how little help they are when when it comes to actually doing anything. They do kick it off pretty well, but they are they do constantly seem surprised when everything that they learned was true. So Yeah, well and it's a funny thing because they're technically the ones who are supposed to like they're the seasoned vampire hunters yeah. and yet they freak out more than anyone else every time they're attacked and it, it, it works in a way that like oh yeah everyone was a teen and everyone can relate to their mm-hmm. fox bravado that bravado was fantastic and I, that relatability too yeah i mean i think even as teens we don't give teens enough credit for how much they do understand and how often they probably right. actually figure something out quicker than you an adult who's had more life experience has never thought about something but then that attitude that comes with it is what makes adults go, sure, kid. Yeah. <laughs> right, <laughs> you know? right, right. Which is the Frog, frog Brothers. I, they even map out right before the big skirmish at the end of it when they're about to attack the house. They're like, hey, when a vampire dies, remember, there's going to be a different response for every vampire. Yeah. Some might explode. Some might turn into goo. Who knows what will happen? And then it happens right in front of them. One just blows up the entire like piping system because he's in yeah. the tub. And they don't, they're looking at it like, why is this happening? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, that and that's what I love about them so much is that they they always know what's going to happen and yet they're the most surprised when it actually does happen. Yeah. It's like how are you guys? How are you guys this the both the the seasoned vet and the rookie cops at the same time? I don't know, but I'm happy that they made them that way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I also love that everybody is so everybody's annoyed with their attitudes, but everybody does kind of take their information to heart. Uh it takes Sam a little bit of time because, you know, tell somebody vampires exist. But once he's right. convinced, he's coming to them for, for feedback. And once again, with that skirmish, when they tell them how it's going to be, nobody seems to respond when people's heads are exploding or strange things are happening. Because like, we were I think there's even the moment when, yeah, when Sam spears one of them into the boom box with an arrow. Right. He goes up to Michael to cover him because Michael's weak at that moment. Right, so he right. listened to them really well. Like this is going to be a big boom, and tries to keep his brother safe. So I do love that the as much as the Frog Brothers are you know cowardly idiots, that yeah. they're not they're not portrayed as if they are idiots in, in a sense because they are correct. They're just right. I don't know. I, I guess they're just very human and still are young and yeah. didn't respond to this because they've probably never seen it yet. Yeah, and I think that's that's what makes them so memorable is that they are humans like yeah you know it's the whole thing where even if you shot a gun a million times every time you shoot you still blink because yeah it's still a loud noise like you react the same way um and i think that's kind of their reaction it's a very human like yeah they know that the vampire is going to explode but also some someone exploding is still going to kind of freak you out a little bit <laughs> i would hope so um yeah. granted like i said the others were kind of chill about it but i guess they were more in that survivalist mode right i think that's where they're more quote-unquote idiots i suppose is that they know the vampire stuff the nerdy part of it they have down pat they know their theory yeah but they want to claim that they're survivalists even though they probably never so much as carved anything with a knife right right they wouldn't even know how to make a spear (laughs) (laughs) yeah and also they have the least amount of stakes in the film like If Michael loses, he you know he becomes a vampire, and Sam loses his brother, and they all lose eventually if the if they turn the mom and stuff. But the Frog Brothers, they can leave at any point, yes. and nothing would really change. And so I think that adds to the fact that they're freaking out because their their battle is just to help out their friends, which is a noble one. But also, it's the one where it's like, yeah, these guys would be freaked out the most mm-hmm. because not to mention that they're only friends because they got hired for a job. Right, right. <laughs> uh, I do love that it builds a friendship as they go along. But uh, yeah, right. I do think it's funny how like you go through these great lengths for somebody that you don't really know. You just hate vampires. Yeah. Which is also, I, I guess their cowardice comes into play in a good way because it's aimed at the fact that they have that strong prejudice. And it's the prejudice right. that we're constantly making fun of. The fact that they just want to kill vampires, but they're so ill-equipped to killing them, they feel really bad about it, that it shares like, so yeah. you are human beings. Okay. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, especially because so many of our protagonists are vampire or vampire adjacent mm-hmm. that you kind of need the... Like, even when um, when they're threatening, like, there's a scene where they're like, oh, I'm not going to get in the car when they're leaving right. the, the tomb. They're like, I'm not going to get in the car if with any vampires and Sam's like, okay, then we're going to leave you here. And they're like, Oh, we'll make an exception. Like it's that kind of like, yeah, it's that kind of like, if they were more hardened, you wouldn't like them as much. You'd be like, Oh, these guys are kind of like, they'd want to kill the vampires and you wouldn't like them. Yeah. 
you would kind of get that allegory of them just being really hardcore racists. And yeah, exactly. Exactly. Whereas now they're just dumb kids who are, we don't know. I mean, again, I know that they touch upon this in the sequels since the sequels are about, uh, at least Corey Feldman's character. And at least one of the sequels, he comes back. So I'm pretty sure that they've touched upon that a little bit more as to the reasons why they're so anti vamp. Um, other than, in, in this world, vamps have a very clear, they're not very good kind of, uh, yeah. <laughs> kind of stance. So I, I guess it makes sense there. It's like, well, yeah, you, you are dealing with a thing that is legitimately like a plague that is in your town. Right. Right. But I do love that they very casually put that metaphor in there just to kind of make you think about it a little bit. It's like, if you're annoyed with these kids being like how they just immediately, when they're in the bedroom with star and the kid, it's like, I say we kill them right now. That yeah. was the one moment where I felt like if you had been older and you would have been a more serious character, I would hope that you die. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I think, yeah, if if they had been older and played more serious, I feel like they would have been the kind of um, – and the only one I can think of is Army of the Dead because I just saw it. But the like, this guy is going to screw the whole team over, you know, like that character. And since they're still young, you don't get that from them. You kind of get the – Oh, they're just dumb kids who don't really understand the whole aspect of being a vampire. Mm-hmm. So right now they just kind of see it as a very black and white, I'm a dumb kid way. Yeah. Where they slowly learn through the film what vampires really are. And I think, yeah, I think, again, just making them so young adds to that and keeps them likable throughout the whole thing. I think it also makes them more capable of learning as they go. Because you do mm-hmm. have Star stand in front of the kid and say, like, he's just a little boy. And to really show that, it's like, just because somebody's a vampire doesn't mean you understand what that means. And it doesn't mean that they are anything that they can help. This kid was turned. So this kid is what it is. And you're judging this kid just on that basis, even though this this little boy is hungry and is having a very emotional response to all of the vamp death going on around him. He suddenly starts to go wild. But before then, he was just asleep. And I, I really yeah. appreciated that because they just go, okay, because they don't really know what to do. And yeah, yeah, I'm happy that they put that in there, which more of that in movies, please. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Them, and like, yeah, because and then right after when he jumps out of the bed, they like run away and it's kind of like, <laughs> oh, yeah, they they've come to terms with the fact that they can't kill him. So they have to do something and would yeah. just run away at this point. <laughs> And who wouldn't? That was a really terrifying sequence. I love that. <laughs> yeah. In fact, I guess like one thing I do want to touch upon before we end up rounding off is I have said a few times that this isn't like the most aesthetic feast of a film visually, but it doesn't mean that I feel that it doesn't have any wonderful aesthetics in it. In fact, for me, what it has in spades, which is a very common thing in the 80s, but I could totally use it back in the 2020s, please. I think we've had a long <laughs> enough time without it, is like old gothic types of visuals all the mist yeah and the way that the vampires float one of my favorite images in the entire film was michael floating past sam's window and although right it's, right. it's funny because he can't control himself but yeah it is also reminiscent of salem's lot it's reminiscent of mm-hmm. uh i believe they also do it in the buffy the vampire slayer movie just a couple years after this and that's an effect that just gets me every time. And it looks phenomenal in this film. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah. One of the things that I appreciate about these movies, as opposed to like newer movies is that there was that, like when they go attack the, 
the kids on the beach, there's also a bunch of fog. Like, Josh mm-hmm. Schumacher does not have to, like, he doesn't try to even justify half the visuals that he creates. No. He's just like, yeah, we need fog because it'll look cooler. Yeah. <laughs> we need random red lights in every direction, even though they don't have any real light source. No. And I think that that, that kind of adds, like, it adds to the, like you were saying, the gothic aspects to it because it does give it a dreamlike feel that mm-hmm. not everything is explained. And I think that helps that it really helps. Like you believe this world is just this kind of like Gothic, like a uh, dreamlike atmosphere to the whole thing. I also think it's one of the reasons this movie has stood the test of time so well is although it is very dated and it's just general atmosphere, it's like, Oh, that's the eighties. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> which is not a bad thing. Cause I thank goodness we have more movies nowadays that will, set things in previous decades to make them feel a little less antiquated. Um, A movie is only dated if it has the limitations of its time, I feel. And I don't feel that the viewpoint of the film really suffers from that very much. Uh, And as you were saying, by having Schumacher just say, but this looks right for the scene, this conveys a certain feeling for a particular scene that makes something powerful. That's also exactly what I feel is more what we're looking for when we think of nostalgia, not so much Mm -hmm. that we need everybody to listen to Huey Lewis in the news or something, or that we have to wear like, you know, big bell bottoms to make it the seventies or something. It's more that what stylistic choices were being used that we miss. And in this case, I do think stuff like moody light to convey the, rage and hunger that these vampires are going through right or the the blue misty underbelly of that bridge just to do a really cool moment of them falling into this cloud yeah who cares it's cool and (laughs) it's an aesthetic that does get lost the more realistic you want to make your vampire movie uh, <laughs> just to put that out there too people can get really caught up on like oh it would never work that way i'm like you're probably right. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> In more ways than one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I feel like, yeah, I feel like, a, especially in a lot of film Twitter arguments, there's a lot of, oh, well, this doesn't work. And it's like, I always go back to Martin Scorsese, where if you mm-hmm. see some Mar- Martin Scorsese will do like jump cuts, he'll have like huge continuity errors. Mm-hmm. And his whole philosophy is like, hey, as long as it works for the film, yeah, I don't care. If, like, I, there was that. The famous scene in Jurassic Park where the T Rex walks out of the out of the pin, and then the next, like in the same scene, there's a huge drop. And I remember the you know the producer came up to him and he said, "You can't have a drop if we just saw him walk out." And Steven Spielberg's like, "Yeah, I don't care. Like just put it." And it's like, (laughs) and I always remember that it's like, yeah, Steven Spielberg is probably one of our best directors right now. Or of all time. And it's like, yeah, he, he understood that the audience is going to, well, hopefully be so enwrapped in the film that they're not going to realize that it's happening until they see it, you know, again and again, That's you it. know? Yeah. It's repeat viewings that are going to make you see these things. Unless yeah. it's a really egregious one. I mean, yeah, there are definitely continuity errors in films that I think you should have known better. You know, right. subtle things right. like we just saw somebody have... Like you do a joke where they're in a car chase and somebody has like the steering wheel pop off and they're like, oh no. And they scream and it's funny. And then we get a wide shot to show the cars like spinning out of control. The next shot we see <laughs> as they're spinning out of control is them holding the steering wheel and steering the wheels with it. 
And we're like, right, just right. lost the steering wheel. And then, then when they crash, the steering wheel is attached, but they're outside the car. And you're like, yeah, that, those are bad continuity errors. <laughs> um, yeah. But this one, with as you mentioned with Jurassic Park, is a blink and you miss it kind of thing. I'm mm-hmm. sure The Lost Boys has it as well, but it's such a dreamlike experience that I usually just get caught yeah. up in what the movie's trying to give me. Exactly, yeah. And it definitely presents itself almost as a like – not it's not winking at the audience, but it is like, hey, you're watching a film mm-hmm. where like we're here to like you're not in the real world anymore. And I think like those type of films are always my favorite type of films where they <laughs> they kind of like put you into their world as opposed to telling you their story in our world. Mm-hmm. And I always, you know, that's always my favorite type of film. Yeah, I love a lot of different approaches to film, but my favorites also tend to be either they're going to do that to the story or they're going to do that to the visuals. So no matter what you're seeing or experiencing somebody's vision of this particular situation, basically. And this one even plays out kind of like a parable in a, in a fairy tale, like a campfire story. Cause it starts coming in through the mist and we see Mm -hmm. the city and we hear cry little sister playing Actually, no, I don't think it starts your, with your strange, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It start, well, it starts with the radio switching back and forth. Yeah, fair enough. But still, the, yeah. the, the, the clouds part. And then, I mean, we open with the vampires. I find that so interesting mm-hmm. that the first characters, at least major characters that we see in the film, are the vampires just kind of harassing people on the boardwalk. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they do vampire things. But And it is kind of funny because that opening where they're going over the the ocean you're kind of going going through the fog mm-hmm. it almost feels like a curtain opening it does. you know it always it really like welcome to the movie and i think that's one of the reasons that kind of sets you exactly for the tone that you're gonna be in for the rest of the film and i love that schumacher does that. it's the simpsons basically their opening yeah let's <laughs> do the same thing they probably got it to make fun of the lost boys uh, <laughs> think of it and it ends the same way too like any play that i've been in if you didn't have a curtain to close with and hell even a lot of times when you did have a curtain to close with you just didn't want to use it you use your lights so i love that they just right. had the like everything's broken in the house so the only light source they have is the stupid refrigerator which has been a, like a major a nuisance <laughs> throughout the entire film and then yeah <laughs> the grandpa's just standing there he mentions he's like one thing i couldn't i could never stand about santa carla was the damn vampires and then yeah. you cut to the family all standing in the doorway and they're well lit and he closes the refrigerator and the lights just, they're just in darkness. And then you get yeah. Joel Schumacher film. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. He definitely, yeah. He closes the curtain on yeah. you. And I think that that's awesome. I, think. I do appreciate a film that does that. And I do feel that that's another perspective. I would love to watch this again from is like how much of this resembles theatrics, you know? Yeah. I, yeah. I think there's a lot of it in there. Yeah, I think that there would be more, you'd find more references than you wouldn't, almost. Yeah. In how, just how he plays with the the way you're watching the film. <laughs> yeah, and it's so, just to make it clear to everybody who's listening, I do find a lot of visual strength to the film and a lot of strong aesthetics in it. And it's just that it's not the, not the standard, but it's just kind of not the typical type of film that we've discussed in this podcast so far. So I also want to thank you, Andrew, for bringing it up because, for one, ah, get to talk about a classic. Uh, <laughs> and for another, I finally get to talk about a film 
that isn't as clear cut and evident in the same way that a lot of the films I've spoken about have been. And that right. creates more variety and, and a broader conversation here, even though we've already discussed quite a few of the same topics, uh, got into a lot of political discussions as well here touched upon those things, which I, if you're listening, I, I do hope that you have caught on. That seems to be a trend with a lot of the conversations that we have. <laughs> it's almost as if beauty is somewhat linked into the sociopolitical sphere. Uh, but uh, I'll let others decide their feelings on that. <laughs> uh, were there any other statements or feelings, uh, observations you've had about the movie you'd like to discuss? No, I think we covered pretty much everything. All right. Well, then we're going to wrap up. So this podcast is a part of the Anatomy of a Scream pod squad. Be sure to follow the Anatomy of a Scream podcast page on your preferred podcast platform to check out more introspective, semi-academic, and fun podcasts, including The Scream Teens, hosted by Gory Corey and Lena, and much more. You can find more info at anatomyofascream.wordpress.com. If you're interested in more of my musings on beauty and horror or horror in general, you can follow me on Twitter at underscore shockaholic, and you can find my written work at Ghoulish Media and Morbidly Beautiful. Be sure to keep track of the podcast on Twitter and Facebook at Beauty Horror Pod. Thank you again, Andrew, for sitting down with me to talk about this classic film, this wonderful uh, bit of my uh, childhood here. Um, so where can everybody follow you and all of your uh, ongoing projects? Yeah, I, you can find me on, if you just search Andrew Hada Films on Twitter or on YouTube, you'll find my Twitter, of course, and my YouTube where we're, we're putting more short films up there, which is interesting. We have like two coming up, so that'll be cool. And then um, if you follow The Bomb Squad, that's the podcast we have where we kind of look at underrated films and try to find good in them or people hate movies people hate and we okay. try to find the good in them. So, uh, so that one's always interesting. But yeah, pretty much those two things. And thank you, dear listener, for joining us and talking about the beauty that lurks within the horrible. Goodbye. There's no beauty Squad.